Hello and welcome to City Breaks London, Episode 9, The Inns of Court. I'm Marion Jones. City Breaks, if you haven't been with us before, offers you a chance to visit a city you're surely going to love, a chance to find out all the historical and cultural background info that would really help you to enjoy your visit and to get the most out of it. City Breaks London is our eighth series, so if you're interested in, let's say, Munich or St Petersburg or Florence, then do have a look at our back catalogue and see what you can find. Today, though, we're about a third of the way into the London series, episode nine, dealing with one of those great London institutions that some people are steeped in, perhaps even spend their entire life working in. I think it is that sort of place. If you belong there, you definitely get sucked in. On the other hand, lots and lots more people who've never heard of it or don't know anything about it. And that's a pity because it's a little part of London that's unique, very much just itself, quite different from anywhere else you could visit, a tranquil little oasis and yet just off some of London's very busiest streets. It's chock full of history, goes right back to medieval times. It's one of those places where you really can feel history oozing out of every brick. And if what you need is a little respite, a chance to be somewhere quiet, tranquil, idyllic, then I would respectfully suggest that a couple of hours wandering around the Inns of Court could be just what you need. If you were able to look behind the doors of many of the buildings there, I'm sure you'd find a world of bustle, because this is the centre of all things legal, the place where some of Britain's top barristers and legal eagles generally work. But from your point of view, wandering around outside, what you'll find is the oldie-worldy atmosphere, ancient buildings, little courtyards, lawns and little gardens, a maze of interconnecting pathways. Reminiscent of Oxford or Cambridge, if you know either of those. In fact, I think it's quite a well-worn path for some of our most gilded youth that they've perhaps been to public school, been through Oxford or Cambridge, and then they end up here, training for a lucrative career in the legal profession. The essayist and author Charles Lamb was born here in 1775, and he left us these couple of lines of reminiscence about what it was like. He fondly remembered, quote, its church, its hall, its gardens, its fountain, its river, the antique air, the sundials with their moral inscriptions. So hopefully you're getting some idea, but I imagine if you're one of the people who hasn't been there, you don't feel very much wiser. So let's start with a little history. The existence of the Inns of Court goes back to medieval days, to a time when the land on which all of this was built belonged to an organisation known as the Knights Templar, a religious and semi-military organisation which began life in Jerusalem, but which in the 12th and 13th century was in operation in England too. So they bought this land and on it they built their church, a building which is in fact still there today and known as Temple Church. And they gave their name too to other parts of the area, so that even today you have Inner Temple and Middle Temple and so on. And up around the church grew what became known as the Four Inns of Court, a place where for centuries barristers trained, lived, practised the law. The word inns is a reference to the fact that they lived in, so they slept, ate, discussing all things legal, taking on cases and often travelling by ferry up the river to the courts at Westminster. Its heyday was perhaps during the Elizabethan times in the 16th century, when 
A typical student would perhaps spend a year or two studying classics at Oxford or Cambridge and then transfer here to complete their education. Many of them were hoping to gain enough legal knowledge to be able to go home because students came here from all over England and Wales. They wanted to go home and maybe make out a career as a justice of the peace. Others, though, were aiming for a full legal training, seven or eight years' worth of study that would allow them eventually to practice themselves at Westminster. The course of study, in inverted commas, was operated as a system of following senior lawyers about, listening to them, watching them at work, learning from them. There weren't any textbooks. You just had to be there, picking up the knowledge you could, until eventually, after perhaps five years, you might be called to the bar. And if that part of the training went well, then eventually you would be a practising lawyer, perhaps taking on some of the most important cases in the land. You had to live in while you were training. You were expected to dine in your inn of court, somewhere to mix and learn. But lots of the things I read very much implied that it wasn't all about sober study. Oh no, there was much socialising and revelry. Bear in mind that what the inns of court actually did was collect a whole lot of young men together. And so, in the hours off duty, there'd be fencing and dancing and drinking, jousting, which they called tilting, plays. Twelfth Night, for example, was commissioned by the Middle Temple. And I think we can safely say that they played at least as hard as they worked. So, to embark on a little tour of buildings that you can actually look at today, you can't get into most of them, but you can certainly walk past them and soak up some atmosphere. Let's start perhaps with Middle Temple Hall, which was built in 1571 and has been really ever since the heart of the community. Guidebooks want to describe it as something like a remarkable Tudor building, and it absolutely was the centre of the whole dining-in tradition, a tradition actually that's still going strong today. And to give a flavour of what it was like in Tudor times, here's an extract from an essay called London Legal, which is published in a really interesting guidebook called London Stories, where a whole lot of guides who work for the London Walks Company have all contributed a chapter on the bit of London they know best. This is Tom Hooper on Middle Temple Hall. Quote, on entering through 17th century screen doors, the extraordinarily rare fine oak double hammer beam roof becomes fully visible. It gives an ambience, and it's really not difficult to imagine that Queen Elizabeth I was here in 1576, and that Shakespeare's Twelfth Night was premiered here in 1602. The story is told that the Virgin Queen banned the wearing of yellow stockings, which in turn gave rise to their inclusion in Twelfth Night. Actually, Middle Temple appears to have had a notably good relationship with the Queen, who gave them a tree as a gift. The tree was in Windsor Great Park, so it was cut down, floated along the Thames, brought to Middle Temple and turned into the 29-foot table, still in use as the benches dining table at the West End. In fact, if you do manage to get inside on a tour, you'll notice that there is also a smaller table in Middle Temple Hall, but that is no less illustrious. It's said to have been carved from wood which came from Sir Francis Drake's ship, the Golden Hind. Clustered around the hall are the four courts, all with their own names, Inner Temple, Middle Temple, Gray's Inn and Lincoln's Inn. Each have their own character, and no history is more interesting than that of Middle Temple, a cluster of medieval buildings around Fountain Court, the alma mater of no lesser beings than Sir Walter Raleigh, William Thackeray and Charles Dickens. 
so many claims to fame, perhaps one of the greatest, the fact that the very first performance of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night was held here. Appropriately, it was performed on the Feast of Candlemas in 1602. And 400 years later, 2002, a celebratory performance was put on in the very same hall, Eddie Redmayne making his professional debut, alongside Mark Rylance. Middle Temple Garden is also very famous, because it featured in that scene in Henry VI Part One, where Shakespeare wrote about the origin of the term the Wars of the Roses. He showed the Duke of York and the Earl of Somerset picking roses, white for the Duke of York, of course, and red for the Earl of Somerset, who was a Lancastrian, and that was deemed to be how the power struggle began, which defined the Wars of the Roses. The smallest of the four inns is Gray's Inn. It too has a 17th century garden, known as the Walks, which is open to the public at certain parts of the day. And if you choose to visit, you can know that you are treading the same ground where famous Gray's Inn members such as Thomas Cromwell and Baroness Hale studied, as did Sir Francis Bacon. And the essay writer Charles Lamb summed up the idea that just walking there makes you think of all the famous people who've trodden that way before when he wrote the following. Gray's Inn Gardens are altogether reverend and law-breathing. Bacon has left the impress of his foot upon their gravel walks. They have a Shakespeare connection too, because it's believed that the first performance ever given of the Comedy of Errors took place right here at Gray's Inn. Other famous people connected with Gray's Inn are Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who it is said first met at a dinner right here in Gray's Inn Hall. One person who very much enjoyed the peaceful atmosphere of Gray's Inn was Nathaniel Hawthorne, visiting in 1870 and writing about how strange it was to leave the very busy London street of Hoburn and immediately find yourself in such tranquil surroundings. This is what he wrote. I went astray in Hoburn through an arched entrance over which was Staple Inn, but in a court opening inwards from this was a surrounding seclusion of quiet dwelling houses with beautiful green shrubbery and grass plots in the court, and a great many sunflowers in full bloom. There was not a quieter spot in England than this. In all the hundreds of years since London was built, it has not been able to sweep its roaring tide over that little island of quiet. And even though that was written 150 years ago, I think you will find the atmosphere is still really quite similar. So quiet is it that we need the history books to remind us of the raucous goings-on that have happened there so many times. In her book on Elizabethan London, the author Lisa Picard gives us a good example. She writes of one pious Lady Bacon whose son was going to join Gray's Inn and who wrote to him, as mothers with student sons do, to express her hope that he was going to behave himself. I trust that they will not mum nor mask nor sinfully revel at Gray's Inn, she said. And as the author Lisa Picard puts it rather nicely, quote, The poor lady's trust was misplaced. Mummers and masks and sinful revels were just what Gray's Inn was good at. And then she tells us about some evidence she's found of a particularly revelsome evening, which a contemporary described as a discordant tumult. There was drinking and shouting out and dancing and revelling with gentlewomen, no less. And all of this followed by a performance of The Comedy of Errors. She gives us some more evidence culminating in a quotation from the accounts for the year 1570, in which was written, quote, To the carpenter, 
for mending forms and tables in the hall after the great show, and new footing most of the trestles, ten shillings. And then there's Lincoln's Inn. I do like the description of their emblem, actually. The language used really gives a sense of that other world that most of us can't really imagine ever belonging to. So their emblem, we are told on their website, is, wait for it, Azure Millrinds with a purple rampant lion on a canton. I challenge you to draw that. But you do have to admit that many of the country's most illustrious people have passed through the doors of Lincoln's Inn. Sir Thomas More, for one, the poet John Donne, for another, and no fewer than 16 British Prime Ministers, who would include William Pitt, Herbert Asquith and Margaret Thatcher. They too have their raucous evenings. It's their claim to fame that Lincoln's Inn is the only place in the entire country where you're allowed to toast the monarch sitting down. And all of this dates back to an occasion when King Charles II was visiting. He was entertained at the inn, and by the end of the evening the members were so drunk that he gave them permission to remain seated during the royal toast. But just as a sign that you can't say that absolutely every evening at these places ends in drunken debauchery, let me tell the story of a dinner in the year 1780, when one Edward Gibbon, he who wrote Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, was the guest, he gave a big long speech on political issues, there was much applause, and then something went wrong. A guest stood up, spoke at length, and counted all his arguments, to the point where Mr Gibbon apparently walked out, and the second speaker was none other person than William Pitt the Younger, who went on to become the country's youngest Prime Minister. That's the sort of person you meet if you go there, you see. Lincoln's Inn also has its own garden, another classic 17th-century designed garden, and the largest of them all, 12 acres in total, known as Lincoln's Inn Fields, and named after one Earl of Lincoln. There's a chapel too, the foundation stone of which was laid by John Donne, and there's a strange area known as the Undercroft, so an open area but with a roof over it, which was designed by the architect Inigo Jones to be a place where students could walk and talk and, as he put it, confer for learning. If you go to stand in the Undercroft, be aware that it was also the site in the year 1659 of a very secret and risky meeting. Eighty or so members of Parliament gathered there to discuss the idea of trying to work towards the restoration of the monarchy. It is Lincoln's Inn, which Charles Dickens describes in the opening paragraphs of his novel Bleak House, which reads like this. Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable London weather. Fog everywhere. That makes it sound very solid and respectable, but it's not difficult to find accounts, too, of raucous evenings spent at Lincoln's Inn. Here's just one from 1560. Obviously, a student known as Talbot had been having some problems with his roommate, and unfortunately, he turned to violence to solve them. Quote, Talbot fined 40 shillings for drawing his sword and hurting Nugent, his chamber fellow. Dillon fined 13 shillings and fourpence for having a woman at night in Nugent's chamber. Well, you may not think much of Talbot or Dillon, but surely you have to have some sympathy for poor Nugent being threatened with violence by one fellow student and thrown out of his room by another. And there was more violence in 1576 when one of the students, one George Scrope, was charged with striking one of the benches, the benches being the governor of the inn, the man who wielded all the power, surely not a good idea. 
And what had the bench had done to him? We are told that he had, quote, found fault with his study of astronomy, which he thought was more than he should have done. So a wander through the Inns of Court really should leave you feeling the weight of history all around you. But it is absolutely also today a workplace full of senior lawyers and barristers. They're based at the Inns of Court and at the nearby Inns of Chancery. That's full of solicitors and clerks. I think you very possibly have to be a lawyer or a law student to understand exactly what's going on. But certainly if you walk about, you'll see on some of the buildings entrance boards full of lists of names. And those will be the names of the people practising in those chambers. The head of chambers name first, followed by all the other members in the order in which they joined. So all quite hierarchical. If you want to be a barrister, then you must be called to the bar and be a member of one of these four inns. One tradition is that you must attend what's known as qualifying sessions, which turn out to be formal dinners in your inn. So what I'd really like to know is, do they in any way resemble some of those raucous evenings that we've just been listening to descriptions of? I guess there must be more mixed company these days, so maybe that's, dare I say it, civilised things a little. But these trainee barristers are, by and large, young people, under lots of pressure, so I'm guessing they do sometimes let off steam. Every barrister is an individual business, but they collect together in groupings known as chambers, and a chamber will probably specialise in some way, some with general law, others perhaps with commercial law or family law. And although much has changed over the centuries, Tom Hooper in his essay on London Legal does finish by saying, quote, the two stalwarts of practice, advocacy and opinion or advice, remain essentially unchanged. So that's quite a useful summary of what it is they're all doing in there. A building which is nearby and which you can get into is the Royal Courts of Justice. And quite a building it is. Literally, miles and miles of corridor, it was built in the 19th century as a hub for all the country's courts. Courts for civil cases, that is, because criminal cases are tried at the Old Bailey. And the principal courts in that building have names that you probably recognise. The High Court, for example, or the Court of Appeal. Its exterior's huge Victorian Gothic pile, and I found a nice description of the inside in a book called London's Secret Walks. Quote, The interior is a wonder of Victorian Gothic, including over 1,000 rooms and a magnificent cathedral-like great hall, which is 238 feet long. You might like to know that you can visit. There's a viewing gallery and you can watch a case proceeding. Geoffrey Archer was tried here, for example. And if you go onto their website, you can book yourself a guided tour. As well as watching cases, there's a little exhibition room where they have a whole collection of wigs and robes on display. And finally then, the last building in this little area that you may well want to visit is Temple Church. It was consecrated in 1185. Henry II himself attended, as did the Patriarch of Jerusalem, one Heraclius. And that was significant because this church was styled on the Holy Sepulchre Church in Jerusalem, hence the round design. And this was significant because this was really the English branch of the Knights Templar who hailed from Jerusalem. It was to be the building where, in the 13th century, new entrance to the Knights Templar would be initiated. If you go to visit, you can see, for example, the flags of the four temples. The one for Middle Temple, for example, is the Lamb and Flag. 
The inner temple one is Pegasus, the winged horse. You can visit the tomb of Edmund Plowden, who died in 1585, he being the man who designed Middle Temple Hall. And I found a description somewhere saying you really shouldn't miss seeing his tomb because it's, quote, a colourful recumbent Tudor effigy. There's a door out to the penitential cell, which is where knights who'd broken the rules, and there were a lot of rules, were imprisoned, sometimes left there to starve to death. And on a more cheerful note, it's worth keeping an eye out for their concert programme because there are some very nice and sometimes free lunchtime concerts in Temple Church. Definitely another way to create a nice peaceful interlude in a busy day spent looking round London. But in the end, I think it will very much be the idea of legal London that you're left with when you leave the Inns of Court. And by nobody was this better described, immortalised, than by Charles Dickens, particularly in his novel Bleak House. If you don't know it, it's the story of the Jarndyce family, who have been lucky enough to discover that they're going to inherit some money. Unfortunately, though, this is disputed. Other people want the fortune too. And so a lawsuit is undertaken. And the case goes under the name Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. One of the plot summaries I consulted read, The Court of Chancery convenes, hears complicated points on the Jarndyce suit, and then adjourns, day after day, without ever coming to any conclusions, thus prolonging the agony of all parties. And it does seem to be that Dickens's aim in writing this book was to criticise the legal system, the Court of Chancery in particular, and point out that cases could drag on and on through decades of convoluted legal manoeuvring. Dickens knew the area very well, in fact, not least because in 1827 he had been employed there, working as a solicitor's clerk at Gray's Inn. He found it very dull, he said, and to amuse himself, he used to lean out of his second-floor window and drop cherry stones on passers-by. Well, I guess the legal profession's loss is the novel-reading public's gain, but you can't deny that he was biased. He apparently once later described this as, quote, one of the most depressing institutions in bricks and mortar known to the children of men. And in his novel too, he didn't lose opportunities to paint it in a rather bleak way. So here's a quotation from the beginning of Bleak House, in which he just describes the setting, in terms which certainly don't leave you with any desire to go and visit. The raw afternoon is rawest, and the dense fog is densest, and the muddy streets are muddiest near that leaden-headed old obstruction, appropriate ornament for the threshold of a leaden-headed old corporation, Temple Bar. And hard by Temple Bar, in Lincoln's Inn Hall, at the very heart of the fog, sits the Lord High Chancellor in his High Court of Chancery. Throughout the novel we have the picture of lawyers arguing with each other, but really just prolonging things so they can run up some nice big fat bills unaware of, perhaps more precisely, uncaring about the fate of the little people who are paying their fees, using up all their money to make them a nice fat living, and really would rather like a decision. Charles Dickens puts it better, of course, so let me quote from him again. This is from Bleak House 2. Quote, The one great principle of the English law is to make business for itself. There is no other principle distinctly, certainly, and consistently maintained through all its narrow turnings. Viewed by this light, it becomes a coherent scheme, 
and not the monstrous maze the laity are apt to think it. Let them but once clearly perceive that its grand principle is to make business for itself at their expense, and surely they will cease to grumble. I wonder what the silver-tongued lawyers have to say in their defence. I think it would be too cynical to end there. Much nicer to end with the description of what I'm really trying to get across today, which is the idea that this is just a little island of quiet and tranquillity, right in the middle of the bustling hub, which is London. If you allow yourself a few days to visit London, I would definitely, definitely set aside a morning or an afternoon, preferably in nice weather, to go and enjoy. Let me leave the last word on this to Nathaniel Hawthorne, writing in 1870, but describing an atmosphere which I really don't think is all that different today. What struck him most of all was the contrast between the bustle just a few streets away and the absolute quiet here in the Inns of Court. Quote, Gray's Inn is a great quiet domain, quadrangle beyond quadrangle, close beside Hoburn, and a large space of greensward enclosed within it. It is very strange to find so much of ancient quietude right in the monster city's very jaws. Nothing else in London is so like the effect of a spell as to pass under one of these archways and find yourself transported from the jumble, rush, tumult, uproar, as of an age of weekdays condensed into the present hour, into what seems an eternal Sabbath. So really, what's not to recommend? Peace, quiet, history, gorgeous surroundings, pretty gardens. Try not to miss it. So that's it for today's episode. Our little interlude is over. Next week we're off somewhere a bit busier, Fleet Street, but somewhere which equally carries the weight of history about it. This time, the history of journalism and the newspaper industry. A street that's been very much written about over the years. And while the newspaper industry has generally moved on, there are still a number of reasons why a morning or an afternoon in Fleet Street are a jolly good idea. So more about that next week. I do hope you'll be able to join me. And for the moment, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>